Hey, we're in a series titled Romans, the Gospel of God Concerning His Son. Our title this morning is A Different Kind of Righteousness. We're in Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. Would you stand with me and let's read our scripture together this morning. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's word. You may be seated. If you've been here for the previous messages in this series, uh, you know by reading what we just read that Paul has turned a corner. And it's a corner that we need to pause briefly and observe uh, together. Someone once said that this passage represents the very center of the Bible. Uh, Whether that is true or not, I don't know. It is, without doubt, uh, expressive of the center of the gospel itself. Uh, Pastor and author John Piper said of Romans 3, 21 to 26, there's not a more important paragraph in the Bible. So let's consider for a moment why that might be so. Uh, You might remember that in chapter 1, you remember chapter 1? That was, we were all a lot younger when we were in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we heard Paul say this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. A righteousness from God is revealed that is all about faith from beginning to end. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so Paul established that, and, and really it's that, that, those two verses represent the whole of the message of Romans in a nutshell. And then Paul kind of went off in this divergence, what I have started to call the depressing divergence, <laughs> the, the, the depressing deviation. He, he, he went off and he, he talked about why that's so important, and so from Chapter 1, verse 18, right on through chapter 3, verse 20, where we left off last week, is this depressing divergence. And and in chapter 1, he he talked about the godless who suppressed the truth about God, who refused to honor him as God or to give thanks to him. And thinking that they were wise, they opted for futility and darkness and rejected the truth of God, the wisdom of God, and they became, Paul says, fools, worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator. They, in essence, sowed the wind and reaped the whirlwind. God expressed then his wrath, not by 
hitting them with lightning, bolts of lightning, or a flood. God expressed his wrath instead by removing his hand of restraint, his hand of moral restraint, and progressively allowing humanity to experience the full consequence of our own choices. In in the early part of chapter 2, Paul pointed to the moralists who sought God's approval through moral performance and moral excellence that also issued in judgmentalism and criticism of the sins of others, but never came close to achieving the righteousness that God requires. And instead, Paul said, they succeeded only in storing up wrath for themselves on the coming day of judgment. In the latter part of chapter 2, he talked about the religionists who pursued God's approval through religious identity and religious affiliation and religious practice and performance and that they couldn't keep the law of God for, for two fundamental reasons. First, because of the pervasiveness of their own sin. And second, because the law was never given as a means of justification, but instead it was given as a means of condemnation to, to reveal our complete inability to keep it, and and on that basis to show us our desperate and total need for someone, someone who would come and save us from the predicament of our sin. Paul said in another place that the law was a teacher, a tutor, that led us to Christ. It brought us to the end of ourselves and forced us to reach out to someone else. And so Paul closes that section in chapter 2, with this conclusion, I'm, not, I'm sorry, not chapter 2, but, but just this section of verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by works, listen now, Listen to what he says. This is his conclusion. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's all the law accomplished. It made us aware that we couldn't keep it. And boom, with with that, the door just slams shut on our short-sighted attempts to please God, to earn his approval by our own efforts, and and in some cases to demand his approval on the basis of our own efforts. The story could have ended there. It could have left us separated from God, utterly unable to meet his requirements, to, to merit his approval, anticipating nothing more than death and ultimate judgment and condemnation. And yet... And yet, into that darkness and into that gloom of the depressing deviation, the depressing divergence, Paul now speaks those two very welcome words, but now. But now. But now what? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, brought to light, illuminated, shown to us, revealed to us, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
So that's where we're going this morning, the righteousness of God being manifested apart from the law. And so Paul has come now full circle and arrived back at the place where he diverged in verse 18 of chapter 1. Have you noticed that when you go into a jewelry store, the diamonds are often displayed against a black background. And they do that to to enhance the brilliance of the diamond itself. And it's like that here. Against the, the dark black background of human sin, of human failure, of rebellion, disobedience, moralism, religious presumption, Paul holds up the dazzling diamond of the gospel. My wife Marcy said, Yesterday, this is a heady passage, and it is. There's, there's no other way to treat Romans, really. It's a heady book, and so we've got to think. My elementary school teacher said we've got to put on our thinking caps. This word that's translated righteousness in its day-to-day usage indicates a a binding judicial verdict. It's a word that comes from the courts of law. And in the New Testament, it speaks of the judicial approval of God as the divine judge, divine approval. And here in verse 21 of Romans 3, it speaks to us of a righteousness that God himself bestows, that God himself gives, that God himself hands down to us. You might think of it this way, that righteousness is a validating performance record that opens doors. When you want a job, you send in a resume, and you just don't throw it together. At least if you want the job, you don't just throw it together. You you craft that resume. Uh, That resume highlights all of the experiences all of the skills that you possess, all of the training that you hope will will persuade someone to give you the job that you're after. You send it in and you say, look at me. Accept me. Hire me. You make sure that that resume includes nothing that would disqualify you for the job. And everything that you can possibly think of that that might qualify you for it. Every religion and every culture believes that it's the same with God. It's not a vocational record. It it is instead a moral or spiritual record. You, You get your performance record, and if it's good enough, you're worthy of life with God, and you're accepted. And then Paul comes along and says, but now, but now, for the first time and the last, an approach to God has been revealed that is unheard of. A different kind of righteousness. The righteousness that that comes from God and is 
given to us, and what he gives us is a perfect record. Think about this with me. Outside of the gospel, we have to cobble together some semblance of righteousness, some semblance of a a positive performance record. And then we offer it up to God and we say, hopefully, and we say anxiously, God, please accept me. But the gospel says the exact opposite of that. The gospel says that God has developed a perfect righteousness. He's established it. He's accomplished it. And he offers it to people like you and me through Jesus Christ. And in receiving it, simply receiving it, we are accepted. Scandalous. In simply receiving it, completely unworthy, completely undeserving sinners are accepted. And this is the uniqueness of Christianity, the uniqueness of the gospel. It it reverses what every other religion and every other worldview and every human heart believes. But Paul wants us to understand that this is not some rogue doctrine, a radical divergence from what God has been saying and doing all along. In verse 21, he adds that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. I don't have time to develop that thought, but for those who had ears to hear, woven throughout every Old Testament book is a doctrine of justification by faith alone. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The prophet Habakkuk declared, the just shall live by faith. Hebrews 11, if you have the time, provides a wonderful list that contains a sampling of Old Testament characters, each of whom were justified, not by their performance record, because there's some unsavory characters, some surprising candidates on that list. Justified not by their exploits, but by their faith. So in verses 22 to 25, here of Romans chapter 3, Paul provides us with six facts about how righteousness comes to sinful people. And I'd like to just point those out in the time I have left this morning. First, he says in verse 22 that the righteousness of God comes through faith, faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. I read this week that Dwight D. Eisenhower, the World War II general and 34th president of the United States, once said, and this is, you know, in the annals of presidential gaffes, this is a good one. America was founded on a deeply felt religious faith, and I don't care what it is. (laughs) <laughs> you see, nobody in the first hour laughed. I just think it's hilarious. 
America was founded on a deeply felt religious faith, and I don't care what it is. You know, when I was in in high school, there was a, you know, everybody had posters in their bedrooms, and one of the ones that, that you saw frequently in those days was Charlie Brown, who said, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. As if sincerity was the thing that that made it, kind of brought everything alive. Eisenhower was ahead of his time because his view is very common today. To say something else, to say something more definitive, more exclusive, uh, more um, dogmatic is to be politically incorrect, to, to be labeled intolerant and be called a bigot. But the fact is that it's the object of belief rather than belief itself which is the crucial issue in Christian faith. The kind of faith that results in righteousness, in God's approval, has one object and it is Jesus Christ alone. Let me give you a ridiculous example. I I might have unshakable faith in my foolishness that if I would strap some feathers to my arms, I could fly from the U.S. to Japan. But I will, don't you think, have put my faith in the wrong place. On the other hand, I I may have just barely enough, this isn't true of me, but it's true of some people, I, I may have just barely enough faith to board an airliner for a transoceanic flight to Japan, white-knuckling it all the way, and yet the object of my faith, that aircraft, will accomplish on most occasions what it promises. I'll arrive at my destination. And in a similar way, having religious faith alone will not save you. Just being religious will never save anyone. We saw that in, in what we in, in Paul's depressing divergence. But having simple faith in Jesus Christ will save you. Listen, and really listen. The Bible never says that people are saved on account of their faith in Christ. You say, What? Listen to what I'm saying here. the view that people are saved on account of their faith in Christ could very well encourage the notion that faith itself makes some kind of contribution and has some merit. On the contrary, as someone has said much better than I could say it, faith is simply the hand of the heart. Which is to say that faith receives what God gives, but it can never add anything to the gift. Faith is a receiving and not a doing. Everyone who receives the salvation God offers receives it by faith and faith alone. Faith is the receptor of the heart. Paul, in writing to the church at Philippi, said that his great desire was that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God, not from me. It comes exclusively from God on the basis of faith. Next, in verse 22, Paul says that the righteousness of God is for all who believe. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Jew, Greek, male, female, high, low, Old Testament, New Testament, There came a day in Jesus' relationship with his disciples when they came to him with a question. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, how may we merit God's approval? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. There are many aspects of Jesus' response here, even though it's very brief. There are many aspects of his response here that I think are so telling. But the one that captures me at the moment is this, that the disciples asked him about works, plural. And Jesus answered in in the singular, the work of God, one thing alone is needed. And that one needful thing is to believe in the one whom God sent. You and I want to accumulate works. We want to, because we want to build up our account with God. And Jesus said there's only one thing, and that is to believe in the one whom God sent, to believe, Jesus said, in me. The righteousness of God is not for those who work. Do you understand that today? The righteousness of God is for all who believe. Third, Paul says that the righteousness of God does not come through our own actions or our own efforts. Verse 23, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That phrase, for there is no distinction, is is an interesting little phrase. It's kind of a bridge between verse 22 and 23, but it kind of belongs to both verses. There's no distinction. All have sinned. There's there's no one in the mass of humanity who has not sinned. There is no one in the mass of humanity who does not fall short of the glory of God. There's one. His name is Jesus If you'll indulge me again for the moment in, in the definition of a word, the, that, that phrase there, that word that's translated fall short, it, it means to miss the mark. You, you may have heard that the expression is taken from the world of archery. But more than that, to fall short expresses a condition, and the condition is one of insufficiency. It's the results when a person is completely lacking in that which is most needed so that they're left out of what is most important. Rather than missing the target, as we think about that image of 
of missing the mark rather than missing the target to the right or the left, high or low. What this expresses is the lack of strength to draw the bow to deliver an arrow all the way to the target. So that all of our arrows go boop, boom, boop, boom. That's the sound of failure. Can you say that with me? Boop, boom. <laughs> that great theologian, the Mad Hatter, in Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, expressed well this condition of, of having fallen short when seeing Alice for a second time, he said to her, you're not the same as you were before. You were much more, muchier. You've lost your muchness. And that's true of us. The the muchness that we have lost and the muchness we therefore lack is the glory of God. We had the glory in the garden. We had it. We enjoyed it. We experienced it. We reveled in it. We worshiped God in it. We praised him. We loved him. We served him. We had his glory, and then we traded it. And we trampled on it. And we gave it up, and we forfeited it, and we lost our muchness because we chose disobedience. And the necessary consequence was that we were driven from the garden and we were separated from the source of life itself. You know, I've read Romans 3.23 my whole life. It was probably one of the verses I had memorized earliest in life. But I noticed something this week I'd never noticed before. Paul says, For all have sinned, past tense and all fall short present tense all have sinned will again and in that againness we fall short present tense we our condition our ongoing condition apart from Christ is constantly and habitually and comprehensively falling short. Next, in verse 24, Paul says that the righteousness of God is given freely as a gift of his grace. It's given freely as a gift of his grace and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And again, we need to define terms. When Paul says that we are justified by his grace, he is again using another legal term. Justification is a legal status conferred by a judicial authority acquitting a defendant of all wrongdoing. Someone once characterized justification by saying it's just as if I'd never sinned. And in this case, Justification is the status of the one whom God has declared righteous once for all. We 
when Paul says that we are justified freely as a gift, he, he used an expression that meant literally without a cause. Meaning that it was undeserved, unearned, unmerited, you might say unreasonable. It's the same expression that Jesus used in John 15, 25 of those who rejected him when he said, they hated me without a cause. For no logical reason. Do we think we deserve something from God? We do not. Do we really understand that God is under no obligation or compulsion whatsoever to justify any of us? Do we grasp the reality that that God finds no merit in any of us? No reasonable basis to declare us righteous. Because he does not... He has to find the cause somewhere. And because he can't find it in us, he finds it in himself. And what he finds in himself is mercy. What he finds in himself is grace. God extends grace to sinners not because they're worthy, God extends grace to sinners because he himself is gracious. Because he himself is merciful. He also finds justice in himself. He justifies us freely as a gift of his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. we'll see in a moment, in Christ Jesus at the cross, God expressed his justice. I found this quote this week, and it's, I don't know who this guy is. Sir Marcus Lone. It must be somebody important. Sir Paul McCartney, I don't know, maybe he's a rock star, I don't know. He once wrote this regarding justification, though. The voice that spells forgiveness, the voice that spells forgiveness will say, you may go. You have been let off of the penalty which your sin deserves. Go. But the verdict, which means acceptance, which is justification, will say, you may come. You are welcome to all of my love and my presence. Do you hear that? Forgiveness is incomplete. Justification closes the loop. Justification says, you may come. In verse 25, Paul continues by saying, the righteousness of God comes through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Through through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Christ Jesus, verse 25, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
what is propitiation? I, I noticed when we were reading that a lot of you dropped out when we came to that word because you, you just looked at that and said, I, I don't know what that word is. I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm just going to... Mm. What's propitiation? Propitiation is a sin offering. It's an atoning sacrifice by which the wrath of a deity is satisfied. It's a drawing of condemnation away from the sinner, the one who so richly deserves condemnation. In chapter 8 of this letter, which we'll see in another lifetime, to the Roman believers, Paul wrote, for what for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Condemnation happened at the cross. Whose condemnation? Mine? In whose flesh? Not mine. He condemned sin in the flesh. Whose sin? Mine? Whose flesh? Not mine. Paul wrote to the Galatians, chapter 3, verse 13, and he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Whose curse? God's curse. It's his law we have failed to keep. His law we have repeatedly, habitually, willingly, casually, flagrantly violated. A curse on whom? On me. Jesus bore my curse. He became a curse for me on my behalf, in my place, as my substitute. Second Corinthians 5, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he says, For our sake he, that is God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, that is Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm going to give you two $25 theological words here. You can take me to lunch. The biblical doctrine of atonement includes two elements. The first is expiation. And what expiation is, is the removal of the guilt from a sinner. Think forgiveness. So that the, the sin, the guilt of the sin, the accountability of the sin is removed. That's expiation. And that's implied here. But that's not the whole story. The second element is the one I already gave you, propitiation, which is the removal from God himself of the wrath that I richly and abundantly deserved. So that as God relates to me, he relates to me no longer in wrath. How did that happen? You remember the story of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane the night 
before he was arrested. It says there in Matthew's account, chapter 26, verse 39, that there was a moment, it says, in going a little farther, he, Jesus, fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I don't think he said it quite as soberly as I just said it. Well, what cup was it that Jesus hoped the Father would let pass from him? The prophet Isaiah tells us, he calls it the cup of God's wrath, the cup of staggering The prophet Ezekiel tells us he called it the cup of horror and desolation. At the cross, Jesus laid on him. The prophet Isaiah said hundreds of years before Christ, he saw it. God laid on Jesus the iniquities of us all. And Jesus drank the entire cup of the wrath of God, the the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of staggering every last drop First Peter 2:24 the, the apostle says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed Again whose sins Our sins, in whose body, not ours. Just before he gave up his spirit and died, Jesus said, it is finished, and it was. And it was. Nothing more was needed. Sin was atoned. God's wrath was satisfied. C.S. Lewis wrote, That in Christ, God became what we are so that by faith in him, we could become what he is. The Apostle John says, Brothers, now we are the sons of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when Christ shall appear, we shall be like him because we will see him just as he is. There's something that's going to happen in that moment of transformation when we see Jesus face to face, that we will be transformed entirely to his likeness. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that is, we might become the approved ones of God. In chapter 4, Paul says that God justifies the ungodly. When you think about that, there's, there's no one else to justify. All there is in humanity is ungodly. God justifies the ungodly, not those who think they're godly or those who pretend to be godly, dress themselves up as godly. What, what that means if you, is, is this, that if you think your, your good deeds are good, they're not. But if you know they're no good, then they're good. That's the way it works. And then your good deeds are done only for the purpose of pleasing God because you're free from having to impress him. 
to merit his favor, to merit his love. Finally, in verse 26, Paul tells us that righteousness by faith is the perfect demonstration of God's justice. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You might ask the question, what about those Old Testament saints, the ones I was describing earlier in Hebrews 11, what about them? What sacrifice covered their sin? Because the writer of Hebrews tells us that the morning and evening sacrifices that were given day after day after day at the temple could never remove sin. So what covers them? And is it possible that that one could think that if God doesn't finally punish sin, why not keep going? In his divine forbearance, forbearance is, is temporary tolerance. Forbearance is not a blank check. There's a clock that's ticking in forbearance. It is temporary tolerance. In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament, the theme has always been justification by faith. By faith. In Christ, God poured out his justice. And because he did that, and only because he did that, he becomes the justifier. He's able to be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Hebrews eleven thirty nine and 40, after that, that list of Old Testament saints, it says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely as a gift of his grace. Hundreds, thousands of years before Christ, hundreds, thousands of years after Christ, all. The cross stands at the center of history. There's a place in the scripture that speaks of Jesus as the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world. Would suggest that, that at some co- point that we don't fully understand, Christ cosmically atoned for all of us. And the locus of that was the cross of Christ outside the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed so that everyone, those who lived and died before Jesus appeared, and all who come after would be justified by faith on the basis of that one perfect sacrifice. 
And so the question this morning, as I close, is this. Will you receive it? Will you receive it? Will you receive what God is offering you in Jesus Christ? Or will you continue to insist on cobbling together your own brand of righteousness that will never save you? Let's pray together. Lord, your word is, uh, is overwhelming, hard, hard, hard to believe at times because of the magnanimity of what you accomplished for us in Christ. Hard to explain sometimes because it's, it's so unbelievable. But it's true. And we thank you that in Christ our sins are atoned. That you removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. That you, God, satisfied your own wrath by pouring it out on your own Son. Who hung between heaven and earth in our place. as our substitute, our Savior. Lord, let us not miss out on that kind of gift. But would you today, Lord, grant to us the gift of faith to receive it. In Jesus' name.